Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Hi there, and welcome back to Big Fish in the Talent Pool, Episode 11. Recruiting leaders, have you ever had such a positive interaction with a server at a restaurant that you thought, I need that person on my team, and then recruited them? Well, that's exactly how Sue Salinsky, head of talent acquisition for U.S. Pharmacopeia, originally started her career as a recruiter over 20 years ago. She eventually made her mark as a physician recruiter, then with CSC, SAIC, and Northrop Grumman before joining USP, where she leads TA globally today. In case you're not familiar, USP develops and disseminates public quality standards for medicines, vitamins, and foods to keep millions of people safe and healthy globally. It's an important mission indeed, giving Sue and her team plenty of interesting talent challenges. Sue gives us a perspective not only on the very special regulated industry she's hired for, but also on her career, like the importance or lack thereof of a job title and how taking one step back to go two steps forward can open up a whole new world of making a difference. Sue is one of the most self-aware and articulate people I know, and bonus, she doesn't take herself too seriously. So we had a lot of fun talking about all the crazy twists and turns of her TA career. I loved our interview, and you will too. Here she comes, Sue Selinsky of U.S. Pharmacopeia. From U.S. Pharmacopeia, Sue Selinsky, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You started life as a physician recruiter. Talk about how that happened. Yeah, so um, I finished college at the University of Washington. I got my B.A. in history, had put myself through college waiting tables and not really sure what I wanted to do next and um, was picked up at a restaurant. That's the short story of it. (laughs) I was waiting on someone and she said, oh, I'd love you to be my waitress next time. And I thought, God forbid I'm here next week because, you know, I want a, I want a real job. So we started talking about it and she owned a physician recruitment firm and she basically hired me on the spot. I began working with her. I worked for her for two years and learned uh, all the things um, about recruiting and quite a few things I shouldn't do mm-hmm. <laughs> in business and recruiting. Mm-hmm. It, the experience was invaluable. After I left her organization, I recruited on my own, physician recruiting still, but I recruited on my own for about four years. Just really struggled working from home by myself. Yeah, so I ended up um, moving to CSC, which is uh, my foray into government contracting, Mm -hmm. and worked there as the West Region recruiter and recruited for, I want to say it was 83 sites in the West Region Mm -hmm. uh, for all the Department of Justice agencies. And that was fascinating work. And I did that for a couple of years, and then we we lost the contract. And being a government contractor, I I knew what that was, but I didn't really know what that was. And um, found myself, I was looking for something else, and ended up taking a temp job at SAIC. And had a great run at SAIC. I covered a maternity leave in the beginning, and within five years, I I was a very senior leader. I was a vice president of uh, staffing at SASC and at the time we were a 13 billion dollar company and um, you know I think there were 44,000 employees it was it was fascinating I learned so much 
there I can safely say my mentor, I, I would never have gotten to where I am today if it wow. weren't for her. That's a powerful statement. Yeah. Let's come back to that because okay. I'm really interested in, as you may know, uh, you know, the whole pushing each other forward, which we need to do, as especially as women, certainly men and women equally, but sometimes, you know, women don't get that. And so that's yeah. really interesting. Let's come back to that. Okay. And then how did you make the switch to Northrop Grumman? Yeah, it was, um, it was just time to leave um, SAIC. Changes were afoot, and I was in a role that was less people leadership and more functional and project leadership uh, and project management myself, and that's not really what was driving me. So I, I left. I decided that it was time to find something else and um, actually took a step back. I went, I went from a, um, a, a director of the corporate function of recruiting and a vice president role or assistant vice president role to um, a manager job at Northrop. I really wanted to get back to, I felt like what was missing and feedback I had heard. And at the time it was tough to hear, but now in hindsight, those are the best times when you actually are open to listening what people have to say. Mm -hmm. And the feedback I heard was that I had lost touch with business, with, with, with the dollar. Like I was too far away hmm. and I didn't get it anymore. I didn't get what the struggles were in recruiting. And so I took that to heart. And uh, when I left SASC, I decided I needed to get back down to the line and uh, still leadership, but lead a team in the business down by the dollar and yeah. not way up at corporate. Okay. And that's how oh. I went to Northrop. Um, and started there in defense, quickly moved up about a year later to a director role over cyber. And, um, and then that was fascinating. You know, we built a practice in the UK um, and really had very challenging positions uh, to recruit for in Maryland and Virginia with the government. Mm -hmm. Very highly cleared, very highly skilled Java um, software developers. And... Um, all, all fascinating, all yeah. very interesting. And tough hiring. Very so, tough. So give us an idea of size and scale. So how many hires a year was that? Yeah, so roughly? at Northrop, um, the team, when I left Northrop, my team was 17 people in the U.S., and I think we had two or three in the U.K., mm -hmm. we had just been building that practice. Um, number of hires were probably in the 400, uh, 400 mm -hmm. a year in the U.S. Yeah. We had hired... I want to say, gosh, I'm forgetting now, but maybe 150 people in the UK for a, a contract. Um, they were contingent hires, but still. Um, so 400 may not seem like a lot with 17 people, but when you're talking about a TSSCI full scope poly from the Maryland agency, and you know these were uh, software developers, this is incredibly difficult. I'm so proud of that team. We really yeah. did a great work. Right, and especially internationally. Mm -hmm. Right, so, and then yeah, a special exactly, challenge. Because we were also in the, our UK business was also incredibly mm -hmm. highly cleared from our UK customer yeah. and also developers in an area where there really wasn't a concentration of that talent either. Right. So, right. And nobody right. knew who Northrop was And you stood that whole thing up, right? Yes, well, I mean, I led the effort, but um, I had a, a great recruiter um, on the ground there, and she was instrumental, very forward-thinking. Uh, certainly the HR director there, too, was terrific. And towards the end, we had hired um, a coordinator, and I believe we had one other person, um, a business partner who had, was sort of phasing out of recruiting. Okay. okay. And we had won that contract, too. It was a billion-dollar contract. The technical solution won it, but our ability to staff ah. um, also was part of the winning decision, is my right. understanding. Yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah. Well, that took some fast talking on somebody's part, right? Because 
you didn't really even know until you got into it how hard it was going to be. No, right? we had no idea. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, so you uh, right now are responsible for all aspects of the talent acquisition for USP, but at one point you were a candidate. So how was it that you were attracted to an opportunity at a really unique place like USP? And what was the value proposition then, and how have you evolved it? Yeah, wow, that's a great question. So when I left Northrop, Northrop, the government contracting world, for those of you in it, and also for those of us who have lived through it, maybe <laughs> suffer. Um, it's really challenging with the budgets in the U.S. That's uh, always being constricted, et cetera. So Northrop was going through another um, org change. And, um, and so things were getting changed. Offices were being moved to different cities, et cetera. And it was just, it felt like, again, it was time to leave and move on and try something different. And what I, what I felt at that time was I had gotten a flavor for international, and I really wanted more international experience. So remember when I left SAIC, I took a step back to get that line experience and really understand the dollar more. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up then, and, and then when I left Northrop, I really wanted to dig into international. So um, when USP came calling, originally their job was a manager job, and I had been a director, and you know, it is important. We do look at resumes every day, and I wouldn't want to see someone keep going, going up and then coming back and going up um, yeah, good point. Right, but um, but I think there are times in your life and in your career where you need to make a really strategic decision. And at first, when USP came calling, um, I, I wasn't interested at all. I was so focused on the title that it was a manager job. I was a director, and mm -hmm. I worked hard for that, and yeah. uh, that I wasn't open. And kudos to the executive recruiter at the time who really then took a different tactic and got me to talk about what I wanted mm. and um, and I loved building and I loved fixing um, and solving problems especially relational problems relationships between managers and TA and HR and all of those things and I really wanted that global experience and um, and like I said I love the building piece so uh, quickly and I liked the opportunity to try new things and be different and grow something. Um, and mission was important to me. Clearly, I worked for government contractors who were all about mission. And right. so um, when, when we continued the conversation, he steered it back to USP and said, everything that you want is here. Don't get caught up on the title. And it was great advice. And I'm so glad I listened to him. Ultimately, I came on as a senior manager, so I got to leverage some of my background. Um, but he helped me to get past my own yeah. title bias or whatever right. it was uh, to see that the, the meat of it was really what, was, what I was looking for. Wow. And good for him. Re recruiting a recruiter yeah. is sometimes the most challenging because right. I know well, you doing, know the inside right? story. But um, apparently, you needed to be recruited, and he yeah. was up to the task. Yeah, that's cool. And I appreciated it, right? I mean, being open to feedback is not um, is not always easy. But every time I've done it in my career, it has helped me tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, and and being open, so not just getting feedback, but also just being open. To possibilities and opportunities wow. so come to USP and you know here was a 200 year old organization 
196 at the time, 197, mm -hmm. and um, very small. I mean, I think when I joined USP, we were barely hitting 900 people. And I had come from Northrop, which had well over 70,000. Yeah. Um, my division alone had 2,000 people in it. So I was going from a team of 17 to two. <laughs> um, you know, wow, that is a change. Exactly. So what did you do? There was a real opportunity. The, the company was incredibly strategic, and that's something that I felt I had been missing in the government contracting world where it felt like we were putting out a lot of fires all the time. And here was an organization who not only had this incredible history of longevity, but worked on five-year strategic cycles. So mm -hmm. at any one time, we were always going to be looking five to seven years ahead. And sure. that, was, that to me was incredibly appealing, the opportunity to be thinking ahead yeah. and not running around with my hair cut on fire. Yeah. And planning and, and building, and that was just all very, very exciting. And the opportunity that the company was, the organization was growing, um, and they really wanted me to come in and help them sort of grow into this strategic, high-performing organization to match the rest of, that's where the rest of the organization was going. I thought it was great, and to grow the global side of the business. So to me, that was fantastic. And when I came in, I realized quickly that things weren't broken. We just were operating on a really small scale. And we needed to, I needed to help the organization come up with a way in which we could grow, but that was sustainable yeah. and that wasn't going to be so different that we would lose everybody in the process, right? Yeah. Lose all the people already driving the bus. Um, my boss likes to say frequently that we are building the plane while we're flying it, and she's, <laughs> she is so right. <laughs> we do. We are, we are doing that. But when I came in, I think uh, I took a step back, and I didn't actually formally put together a plan, although now in my head I see that I did have a plan, uh -huh. but I didn't put it out on paper what, or anything what, like that. What was it? What, what, how would you describe the plan? Yeah, so the plan was that initially that first year or so, I just needed to focus on the foundational. We talked earlier about how you started your career in physician recruitment, which I think is so interesting. Um, say more about what that was like as your very first talent acquisition experience and what you learned from it and maybe what you've used later on, or maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree here, I don't know, but it just seems to me to be such a niche in recruitment and it's got to be interesting to start that way and then move more broadly. Um, so I think the things that I learned in physician recruiting is really matchmaking you know that we are matchmakers <laughs> true it's just it's that simple <laughs> and where I learned um, or how I learned was that no questions were really off limits if I were my own boss now I would be mortified at some of the questions I used to ask my physicians such as and their spouses oh I wow. would request to speak to the spouse and basically interview them and or have a conference call with the two of them. Like, what are you looking, tell me about the kind of family you want to have, where you want to live. But I really, and, and so nowadays, of course, I cringe even saying it out loud, thinking oh, I would I would ask them, are they going to have a family? I mean, I would oh, ask them wow. very in-depth questions, oh, which is how I was sort of taught. Mm -hmm. And then later as I transitioned further is when I realized, oh, I those could I, I understand the problem with asking those questions, but at the time, it did help me realize that I was making a match. This is where these are people's lives, yeah. you know, right. and I was making a match between not only a physician and their job, 
but all of the people in that community and their life, their, that physician and their spouse, um, because there were lots of women doctors at the time, and I understand there are at least 50% women doctors. Anyway, I digress. But, you know, I was, I was basically um, making a match between this physician, their family, the community and all of the people in that community. And wow. So I think it taught Talk me about impact. what a huge <laughs> impact that we have in this, you know, profession. Um, and certainly I learned, uh, how not to treat people too, you know, yeah. um, through my experience at that company. Um, and that honesty was really important because this was also, and I don't know if this was um, prevalent in other industries in recruiting at the time, but it was long, you know, it was before email and mm-hmm. um, we would basically call into residency programs and, or h- how I was taught was to lie and say, oh, I'm a so-and-so and I need a list of your residents' names. Well, for me, that felt so wrong. And so I think I tried to do it once when my boss was sitting behind me. And then after that, I moved towards the, Hey, I'm a physician recruiter and your folks are all going to need a job when they graduate. So how can I help them? Here's what I'm looking for. And just the sort of the honesty route. And I made a ton of placements and people kept asking me how I was doing it. And I was truly just trying to build an honest relationship. So I learned what not to do as well as, um, the importance of what I was doing. Wow. I love that story, especially because, you know, it's funny, you hear a lot these days about authenticity. Yeah. And that for me is like everything old is new again. Like, of course you need to be authentic. And what you're talking about is authenticity was kind of your secret sauce. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it was in a way and it felt like the only way to do it. Yeah. Right. Right. The right way for you. Yeah. The right way for me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm sure that was the key to building trust, which also made people want to yes. spend more time with you and made them comfortable. I yeah. ultimately moved when I, when after those two years and I went out on my own, I moved from a contingency based business because I was my own search firm to only retained. And, and it happened quite by accident. It wasn't even intentional because I just started working with a couple of hospitals and practices so much so that, um, in fact, I'll never forget when the medical director suggested, he said, let me just pay you in advance um, because I know you're going to make the next few placements. You're the only person we're working with. And at that time, super competitive, I thought, okay, great, let's do it. And so then the last two, three years were retained work only. Tell my listeners, especially those who are aspiring leaders, Mm -hmm. what keeps you up at night? I am passionate about leadership. I'm passionate about growing my team and my recruiters. I say that because I had a a couple of key mentors who did that with me. Mm -hmm. To be a VP at 35 of a multi-billion dollar company is only because someone took me under their wing and saw my potential. And I get a little choked up about it. Yeah, I can tell. um, So that's what keeps me up at night is Mm -hmm. how do I ensure that A, I'm growing the people who who have trusted me and my organization to come work with me. Right. And right. Um, how do I ensure that I'm giving them the best experience? Hmm. So that's not only in, um, in how we're recruiting, but how I'm helping them learn new things and exposing them um, and keeping them happy because without them being happy and productive and super engaged and, and passionate in their own right, 
about what we do, we're not going to be able to meet the needs of the business. And in turn, we're not going to be able to serve the mission of global public health. Wow. So that is what keeps me. Wow. Okay. Well, so, so leadership, both from a following the example that was set for you with someone who took you under their wing to paying it forward, paying it forward. And, uh, that it's a very personal thing for you. I can Super tell personal. that you feel like it's really your responsibility to grow talent. And that tops the list above things like sourcing technology or org structure or all of that stuff process. will work itself out. Yeah. All of that. Um, that that's the, of course that's a focus area, mm -hmm. but without keeping uh, the team happy and engaged and growing, yeah, um, we're not going to get anywhere. Right. You know, I can right. introduce all kinds of technologies and and this newfangled thing and that, and we're not going to get anywhere. Right. if people aren't really passionate and engaged. Wow, so true. All right, well, so on that point, um, reach back into last week and give my listeners uh, a little insight as to highlights and lowlights, <laughs> or maybe one highlight and lowlight from last week. And, uh, you know, especially because as we're paying it forward on this podcast, trying to help um, aspiring leaders to picture themselves in senior leadership roles, I think sometimes they may not have a really realistic picture of what goes on for a talent acquisition leader. What what would be your highlight and low light from last week? Um, well, I I hope it's not redundant, but I'm going to focus again on my people because um, the highlight last week, and the highlight and the low light, <laughs> they were both one and the same. <laughs> um, I have a, I had a terrific talent acquisition coordinator. Kathy. Like gold. Like gold. They are. Amazing. Yes, especially and this one. We have an incredibly tight-knit team. There are four recruiters and the coordinator and myself. And everyone is friends. I mean, like good, deep friends. There's deep friendship. Um, as well as just passion and, and we really are awesome at work. And Kathy was leaving. She had a great promotional opportunity and she was leaving. So the, the low light was that she was leaving and Friday was her last day. Yeah. The highlight was that I had found someone so great yeah. that she was working late every night to make sure her transition plan was tight, that she was spending extra time teaching our temp. We had a, um, two of the men on our team, both had babies. Uh, their wives had babies within the last few weeks. Wow. <laughs> One of whom was having a medical issue last week and the text strings going around between Kathy leaving, her ensuring everyone was covered one of our people in the hospital you know um not sure when they were going to come back and what was happening in this major life crisis everyone on these text strings and together how can we do oh let me take that for you i've got this and everyone just wow. jumped in helped each other um it was just incredible it was it was hard to see this happening that kathy was leaving and also incredibly importantly that there was this health issue going on and yet the highlight was, look at this team that I've cobbled together that I, I don't even feel like I can take responsibility for how awesome they work together yeah. and um, and that everyone has their back. And at the end of the day, everyone was thinking about work. So, so they were thinking about themselves and their issues, but there's so much passion and drive and engagement that it was like, look, let's think about this. Cool. I've got this. That was incredible. And, and, and so that what keeps you up at night apparently shouldn't keep you up at night or is because you're choosing people who yeah. 
click and mesh yes. and help each other and care. But it's because it keeps me up at night yeah. and that I'm, I'm passionate about creating this environment where people can be their, themselves, yeah. where they can exhibit that passion for bring, each other and their work. Bring their whole selves to work. Bring their whole what we hear selves about to work. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's and feel cool. appreciated and, and cared for. I mean, so, um, yeah, it keeps you up at night, but it's paying off. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. That's that's huge. And it is true. You know, a lot of times as leaders, we grow talent and it leaves the nest. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's the point. And that is kind of the point, sort of like raising your children. Yes. You don't raise them to stay home, but still, I have there, no interest there's emotions. In, yeah. Clawing mm -hmm. her and keeping her or anybody. Right. right. And at the same time, uh, there is pain in replacing someone yes. who's leaving a big hole. Right? right. But but at the end of the day, it was exciting that she got this right promotion. Yeah. So let's talk about org structure for a minute because that might be a nice lead into that sometimes when someone leaves it gives you an opportunity to rethink. So how does that work for you? Well, how do you think about org structure for your team? So um, you and I have talked about this <laughs> with a couple of changes over the last year or two. And then I have another planned change of retirement coming next October. And um, with Kathy, with our coordinator leaving, we backfilled with a temp. We, we have an immediate need and we're taking care mm -hmm. of that. But as I look forward, I mean, I have the luxury of planning a year out what I'm going to do when this other change happens next October. And I do think about that a lot. Um, in my organization, it's very small for recruiters and the coordinator. So, and I'm really focused on career development for them. So how do I prevent burnout, provide opportunities, give them exposure, grow, help them grow their career and their resume. So for me, the full life cycle recruiter works, that model. Mm -hmm. um, I think it works. And, uh, and they have projects. They each own big, meaty pieces of our business. Um, and so that works now. Next year, um, I may change it a little bit to have a project person, so to have recruiters. And, and they'll still work on some things, but they won't necessarily own the big giant projects like we've done, like we worked on. Yeah. Instead, I might have a project person whose job is that and cycle the recruiters through that. So as one big project ends, phase them out. So that way I'm still giving them that opportunity for growth. But to be honest, I don't know, I haven't figured it out. That's one yeah. of the things I'm hoping to, to glean through my networking is, yeah. how's your model and how's it working for you? And right, yeah. What can I yeah, do? It's, it's a timely topic and not a completely new one, yeah. honestly, in, right. in my opinion, and, and you, you as well. Definitely. I mean, you've been around a while. Um, that we always wonder, am I set up correctly? Are my people interacting with the business they serve yeah. correctly? Um, are we set up for the most efficiency and the most collaboration? Yes. Um, are we doing the right thing with uh, the, the most current technology yeah. and tools? And um, yeah, I mean, it evolves. It yeah. evolves, I think, also as the organization evolves, that uh, you have to adapt to that, be agile. So, so speaking of technology, do you have a favorite new one? Um, so I'm really jazzed, like, Whole bunch of other people about the possibility of um, taking some of these really redundant tasks and non-value-added tasks and seeing if AI works for us. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to free up the recruiter's time. We do a lot of headhunting because of the type of positions that we have. And um, so I'd love to give them more time to do that. Um, interview scheduling takes up 
an inordinate amount of time for mm -hmm. us. Uh, as a global organization that's very matrixed, um, everyone and their brother still, even though I've tried to break every one of their bad habits, but still feels like they need, you know, seven other people to weigh in on a decision. And that's really challenging with, you know, global teams and time zones and that sort of thing. So um, I'm, I'm excited about what's coming. I'm really jazzed to see uh, the chatbots and all these different things. Um, one I recently saw was uh, Yellow, which is an interview mm -hmm. scheduling. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I haven't signed up with them, but they impressed, impressed the pants off of me uh -huh. uh, with the demo. And in fact, the day Kathy, my coordinator, gave notices when they reached out and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you for 15 minutes about interview scheduling. Yeah. And perfect. I, they had no idea, <laughs> but I wrote back and said, your timing is perfect. Here are 15 questions that if you can answer, um, I'm, I'm all yours. We changed it to an hour and I was super impressed. They, they can't even do the stuff that we need, but it's on their deck and they're going to be launching that in uh, January or first quarter of 19. And, and I want to be one of the first people to, to try it out. Um, Very cool. My boss doesn't know that yet. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, she will by the time she, she listens will. to this podcast. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, I think scheduling is one of those things, um, you know, even experienced leaders uh, in many cases don't yet have that solved. Oh, or, no, they, or they have a person or a team of people or an outsourced function or a captive outsource or whatever yeah. that's supposed to handle it for them. And it's just the satisfaction levels are usually never super high and yeah. it's, it's always hard. Um, so I think, I think you're among a good crowd. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> so good for you. That's awesome. This is one thing I absolutely need to share. This is something my mentor, Wendy shared with me and I probably reiterate it to someone at least once a week since the 15 years ago that I wow. learned. Wow. And that is that growth happens in that uncomfortable place. And that goes for communication. Sometimes communication can be uncomfortable. Yes. But but we need it. We need to make that connection and we need to hear it or say it and be open to it yes. both ways. And right. that's how we grow. Right. So we're not helping anybody when we sugarcoat things. Is no. That what you're saying? No. Mm -hmm. Now that's, I mean, I'm a big fan of putting a layer of uh, frosting and sprinkles on something. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, Got to be kind. But, but exactly. Mm -hmm. But there's, it's kind and respectful versus... Um, Sugarcoating, it's different. Right. I think. Yeah, you don't I, want to obscure. I'm seeing it differently. Yeah. Like, right. um, maybe communicating with respect. Yes. And affinity right. um, versus, um, you know, being so direct and without any respect or yeah. respect for their emotions or that sort of thing. Yes, I would agree. Thank you for that. That's uh, that's a that's a really great, applicable life mm -hmm. lesson that we all need. Um, your wish list. For 2020, I know that's a big ask, but I'm just yeah. curious if you were to sort of project out a little more, um, you know, talent acquisition-wise, what, what are you hoping for about a year or two down the road? Um, a year or two down the road, I'd like to see smooth and efficient methods of working with our managers, partnership, um, this real uh, affinity with their business and us understanding and them seeing us as partners, which they do now, but I want to see it further. My hands are mm -hmm. tied together right now. You can't <laughs> see them, but they're really meshed in together. Um, I'd like to see us with a really effective assessment tool. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as we hire the leaders, as I was mentioning earlier, we look at our strategy five to seven years out. And mm-hmm. when, when we've already solidified our people strategy through 2025. Yeah. So when I think about what we need to do to do that, wow. we have got to have strong leadership and we're hiring those leaders today. So how do we assess them in a way that we know they're going to help get us to right. that 2025 vision? Um, and then I'd love to see, I'd love to see AI and how we incorporate it because it will happen. I just, mm-hmm. how's it going to happen? And I'm, I'm excited to see that. Um, and then I'm excited to see the team and where they are and where I am. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and maybe we'll have had, I think at that point, maybe some would have flown the nest because they would be ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would be psyched for them and sad at the same time. Uh-huh. And You know, what, what I'm constantly reminded of as I work with my clients and talk with uh, fellow leaders is, of all the advancements that we have achieved, there's still some friction in the system. Oh, it and it's not specific to any company. It's just the nature of when there's human beings that need to meet other human beings and understand who they are and peel back the layers. There's there's yeah. friction. Am I right? Yeah, so we I would think like so. There's friction. there's and I don't mean this in the way it's going to come out, but the, there's judgment and matchmaking mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. people putting on a show and people trying to be authentic and yeah. and like you said, peeling back the layers and how to do that effectively. And I think. I think that's always going to have some friction to it, right? Yeah, it's a great point. And if we assume positive intent always, but then recognize there's human human beings involved, yeah. which makes it imperfect. <laughs> yeah, and just and just being agile enough and resilient enough to keep your legs bent, right? Because when you're on a ship and things are rocking and moving, if you keep your knees locked, you're going overboard. <laughs> keep your le- keep your knees bent, keep your legs bent, and flow with it, and you know, you'll, you'll get to the calmer waters. Oh my gosh. That's going to be my favorite metaphor <laughs> from here on out. I love it. <laughs> knees bent and, and you'll be fine until calmer waters. Right. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, with that, I, I couldn't end on a more perfect note. <laughs> Is there anything else Sue, you want to say to my listeners or anything else you want to make sure we know about where you're at right now in your career or any advice that you have, especially for aspiring leaders? Yeah, I would say um, be clear about what you want. And that doesn't mean that you need to know your exact destination and, and, and where you're going to be or your title or anything like that. you got to stay open to all that stuff, as I have learned and I told you. Mm-hmm. Um, but be clear about what drives you and what you want and what's going to feed you. Um, because when you can move there into that space... Um, or be constantly moving towards it, you're going to get the experiences that you need to move you forward. And you will, uh, I would also say, um, to really remain open. Um, Open in every way. Open to experiences, open to people, open to interactions. Um, Feedback. Feedback. As you said earlier. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's it's a gift. It really is. Even when it's a slap in the face. Yes. <laughs> but that is a gift in, a, in and yeah. of itself, in yeah. its own way. Wow. Well, terrific. Well, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Big Fish in the Talent Pool podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. I and really appreciate you asking me. I was very flattered. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Okay. Well, I learned a lot talking with Sue, and I hope she encouraged you as well to stay sharp by being humble, curious, and willing to focus on the long term as a talent professional. 
In 2019, I'm committed to not only continue interviewing the most interesting senior talent leaders, but also profiling organizations that are truly innovating TA practices. Like Grayston Bakery in Yonkers, New York, who not only practice the thing they call open hiring, but teach other companies how to do it as well. Pretty cool stuff. It's a privilege to do what we do in TA, and it's my goal to inspire even more passion and commitment to do it well. So until next time, thanks so much for listening to Big Fish in the Talent Pool. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Aaron directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.